0: How did this happen? We're smarter than this. I
1: have a bad feeling about this. This is The 11 Days of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highest highs and the lowest lows of our favorite franchises. I'm your host, Sam, and I picked the franchise this year, which is why we're all talking about Star Wars. And with me is my co-host, the very patient Tessa, and joining us today is our producer, Ryan.
0: Hello. Hi, Ryan.
2: Hey, Sam. Hey, Tessa. So happy to be back joining you guys on mic again for the second month in a row.
0: (laughs) And it's for Star Wars. And it's for Star
2: Wars, yes.
0: We haven't talked about this the last couple episodes, but I definitely also associate Star Wars with the holiday season. And I don't know if it's because my family watched it a lot around like the holidays or I'm just like remembering films coming out.
1: Do you want to tell the Star Wars holiday story?
0: Yeah. So The Force Awakens came out in December (laughs) because (laughs) it was right at the end of the semester, my first semester of grad school. And Sam and I had met but had not really had a lot of conversations beyond some, like, you know, checking each other out across the classroom type of stuff. And I remember very distinctly going to a party and very smoothly asking her, hey, we should exchange numbers so we can talk about Star Wars when it comes out. And yeah, that's that's basically how that happens. So I, I think yeah, you're that leaving out. Reason
1: first of all, you're leaving two very p- important pieces of information out. Why did you go to that party?
0: Oh yeah, you did invite me. Didn't I you? did invite yeah, you to that I forgot party. About that too. Apparently, I'm just forgetting all sorts of things. I blocked it out. It snowed that day right. when Force Awakens came out, and we were like, "It's a Star Wars miracle." Yeah. Anyway, it was like a whole I also thing.
1: marched up to you in class the next day and asked for your number. Yeah. Which like I could have died. <laughs> So
2: qu- the real question there is who shot first. That's tough. So it's like the the current McClunky version where it's like, you know, one of you gets a shot off and then the other one definitively gets the shot, but it's unclear <laughs> as to as to who actually pulled the trigger first.
0: It was a joint effort, really. I mean
1: it was. I would say I would say that I shot first, but only because you antagonized me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is really what happened. That's really in the, the Star cantina Wars. too, right? I mean like yeah. Han shot first, but he wasn't gonna. Yeah. He needed a good reason. He just did not go shooting people. He was provoked. Yeah. yeah. That's you provoked me. Ah, okay. I go. like that. That's a good story. All right. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Speaking of holidays, clearly we gather around the fire and talk about this every year. What are your holiday traditions? Ryan, what are you looking forward to this year?
2: Yeah, so I mean, holiday traditions are kind of all over the place, I feel like, because of changes that have happened within my family, and, you know, this is pandemic year, holiday year three, and so, you know, I feel like we're we're still in that space where my wife and I are sort of trying to jockey to host holidays and not have to travel, like, leave our house on holidays, and we're not quite yet winning that battle. But otherwise, you know, we have our, you know, canon of Christmas movies and specials. You know, the Rankin-Bass stuff is near and dear to our hearts. My wife is very big into the original Tim Allen Santa Claus, which, you know, I, I saw when it came out in the theaters, because I was right in that, that, I think it was like 9 or 10 when it came out. You know, and then uh, the classics, uh White Christmas and Holiday Inn, are very near and dear to my heart, because White Christmas was a movie that my parents watched every year, and I went from being like, Kind of into it when I was really little, to being like ten or fifteen years of like this is the most boring thing ever. To now, like I can't, I can't watch it often enough in in the in the Christmas season.
0: So all your your holiday things are movie related, pop culture related. I feel like that's true for us too. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, it's we're not religious, so there's not really that angle. I mean, I enjoy buying gifts for other people and you know i have a, a few uh holiday records that i enjoy spending like i have i have a bing crosby record the christmas gift from murderer phil specter to all of us is is my favorite and so that that's the one that i most often put on the turntable when i'm in in a holiday mood
1: you can edit this producer ryan if you would like so what you're saying is that uh, that specter produced album is one of your um Number 1 with a bullet, shall we say, holiday albums. That... <laughs> Accurate. <That's> a... Okay. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Well, should we get right to it? I'm ready. Sure. Hey Ryan, is this movie any good? Is Revenge of the Sith it's revenge right yes it is it's one of those R I words. always
0: have to think about it because I'm like it's not return of the sith it's revenge of the sith Well right because uh
1: <laughs> return of the jedi was originally revenge instead of yep. return right. so yeah. this is this is a callback a call forward
2: nor is it the rise rise of the sith
1: Right wasn't it originally revenge of skywalker
2: No I don't think it was re- originally revenge of skywalker cuz originally it was duel of the fates
1: no no no, uh Return of the Jedi.
2: Oh, Return of the Jedi was Revenge of the Jedi until like right. far enough into the process where there was a little bit of merchandise made with that name on it that I'm sure it goes for a lot on eBay or at least posters and stuff. And then Lucas was like, "Well, I, I don't think Jedi's really really are all about revenge, so we should probably change that title." <laughs> <laughs> Back to the
1: question. Is Revenge of the Sith a good movie?
2: So, I'm going to have to talk a lot to unpack that question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we have a
1: podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, so so first, I want to start with my own personal journey with, with the prequels. I was, let's say, in 1999, I was 13 when Phantom Menace came out. So, like, my dad took my brother and I at midnight to get, like, the first batch of action figures that were coming out. And I was like, Darth Maul is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then the Tide you know, sort of started to turn mentally, I think, later on in, like, 99. And then by the time Attack of the Clones came out, I was like, okay, the last one wasn't so good. This one's going to be great, because we're getting into, like, the Clone Wars and all, all that kind of stuff that, like, you know, growing up reading, like, the Timothy Zahn novels and the X-Wing novels and all of the old expanded universe stuff. I was, like, primed and ready for it. And then I saw it, and I was like, this is super cool. And then, like, that was 2002, so I was I was in high school. And I was like, you know, six months later, I was like, man, Yoda having a lightsaber is super dumb. Like, this whole movie sucks. The love story doesn't work. And so by the time this movie came out, I was in college. And I saw it out of like, okay, it's the last Star Wars movie. I should probably see it in theaters. And I've gone all the way back around to being like, no, these movies are actually great. And there's a very small, very, very small number of Artists that I feel like if you start at the place where I know this person is a genius, they're doing these things for a reason and on purpose, and you work backwards from there, it helps you understand the movies better. Lucas is in that category for me, the Wachowskis are in that category for me, Hitchcock is kind of in that category for me. Where, like, you know, I Lynch, I also kind of give a little bit of leeway to on this, where I'm like, okay, if I start with the premise that this is a genius visionary who knows what they're doing and I need to figure out how to understand the vision I'm seeing, it actually does make the movies better. I will respect other people's opinions on that, but that is my own personal perspective. So to me, this is actually the best movie of the prequels. I have a lot of affection for Phantom Menace. I find it very charming and almost like weirdly quaint because it was kind of made in a vacuum without any sort of like Public backlash about Jar Jar or people's opinions and feelings about the old movies and how they impacted these movies. Like it was totally done by people who were 100% on board in that project in a bubble and they put it out into the world and everybody went nuts. <laughs> um, you know, and so by this one, I think you have an Attack of the Clones, I think, has a lot of growing pains from a like digital filmmaking perspective. And Lucas kind of trying to get into the... Him trying to write a romance is still not great. I think it sort of gets there in a way. But again, if you take out all the dialogue, it probably works much better. And then by this movie, I feel like he's finally at the top of his game. Because he hadn't directed anything between the original Star Wars and Phantom Menace. He has zero directing credits in between. So I think by this, he was finally sort of back in the saddle. And... I don't know, more confident, like knowing what he was doing, the technology had developed enough, and they had sort of done Attack of the Clones as a dry run. And so I think this is sort of him at the top of his game in this period of his career.
1: To preface what I will eventually say, I'm going to go to you first, Tessa. But to preface what I will eventually say, I've gone on a journey over the last three days. It's been a very traumatic (laughs) journey, you know, it's it's really interesting uh, hearing you talk about it. I think that one of the things that Tessa and I have both learned over the last few days, or the last three days, I guess, is how talented George Lucas is at the things that he's talented at. I I really like that. If if there was no dialogue during the Anakin and Padme scenes, boy, they would have read a lot much. A lot better. Uh, I think as we suggested yesterday, the solution is not to, not don't direct your own movies because that worked for you with the last two you did before the prequels. Worked with Willow, worked with, you know, lots of stuff. To
2: to be fair, he did direct the throne room parts of Return of the Jedi, supposedly. Like that's the consensus never officially confirmed that like he let Marquand do all the outside stuff because he didn't feel like going Uh. out into the field. And that does, you know, that that throne room scene in Return of the Jedi is some of the best Star Wars. So,
1: right. I mean, but the interesting thing about it is, is that that if he did the throne room scene, my immediate reaction is, well, it's hard to screw that up, especially if he didn't write it. Anyway, it, it's, a, it's a good point. It's really worth considering uh, that approach. And I have I have more thoughts on that, especially since you invoked the Wachowskis. But Tessa, is Revenge of the Sith good?
0: I actually would have agreed with you, Ryan, I think two days ago, <laughs> because... I, for a long time, this was my favorite of the prequels. And I've always stuck by the idea that Lucas is a brilliant ideas person. He's great at world building. He's great at coming up with the ideas for for these stories, and especially the pol- the politics of Star Wars, I think is very interesting in the way that he uses Star Wars to talk about. Certain things we've we've discussed this with Matt in the Phantom Menace, which by the way went up in my estimation on this rewatch. So, but watching it this time, I was just struck by how much better the final season of the Clone Wars tells this story than this film does, and I, and I think that's because I've watched the final season of the Clone Wars after, like, since the last time that I watched Revenge of the Sith, and I think that it also comes from a realization that we talked about yesterday about Attack of the Clones, that the pacing of Anakin's storyline and his characterization is really off in those two films, and it's something that Dave Filoni actually does a much better job of in The Clone Wars. And so I think that that has brought it down a bit in my estimation, just because I can see better ways of telling this story or at least better plot beats or better pacing for some of these characters. However, I do like it much more visually. And we can talk about that when we get to the deep dive section than I liked the other two. And I also but but again, a minus in its favor is also that Padme has done so dirty in this film. And like, it's really hard for me to get past that because of the way that George Lucas just doesn't seem to know how to write any women characters at all. So like that, that is also very hard for me to get through because Padme is a great character and she's great in the first two. And it just kind of feels like this one, he didn't know what to do with her. And so he does something very cliche and very sexist and very awful. And so it is hard for me to get past that storyline, particularly um, because it's such a big part of Anakin's characterization. So it may have gone down in my estimation a bit, I think, on this rewatch. But again, I think it's because it suffers in comparison to other things, not that it's particularly bad in and of itself.
1: You know, it, it kind of makes me wonder, and we can talk about this more later on or on a different day. I wonder if the Han and Leia romance is iconic despite George Lucas, not because of him. And I'm kind of predicting I uh, something I know that that Ryan's gonna talk about, uh, and kind of already has, is that George Lucas is at his best when he is telling a story visually. And I wonder if he's just profoundly uninterested in the romance. And and, and then I wonder as a offshoot from that, if if he is really equipped to tell a narrative tragedy. You know, the 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 thing that gets me about this and is it, it it's been I have previously said that this is the best of the, the 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 prequel trilogy I've actually come to a conclusion I don't think this is a prequel trilogy this is a prequel and a duology I think if you uncouple the phantom menace from these two movies the phantom menace looks way better by comparison and it might have partially something to do with that vacuum but it also has to do with Episode two being the thing, the place where things break, and I, I mentioned in the notes, I'm worried about turning into one of those Star Wars fans because I, I I felt uh, really sad today, and I know you're supposed to feel sad at the end of a tragedy, but not that kind of sad. Like I can accept that that Episode three is not going to change, and all of a sudden Anakin's not going to become Darth Vader. I know that's not going to happen, <laughs> <laughs> but but the journey isn't an honest journey. And I think, Tessa, you brought up one of the reasons I feel that way, which is the, the storytelling's clunky. But I've had another version of the story told to me that is so much better. Right? That just matters so much more. We started watching the final arc of the Clone Wars again. You know, the Ahsoka story that's happening at the same time as episode three. And when you see Anakin, it's like, damn, dude, you're a sociopath. If you can act that way over here and this way over here. And then you remember, these are not the same character because they can't be. It's it's Matt Lanter and Dave Filoni's Anakin versus Hayden Christensen and George Lucas's Anakin. And maybe that shouldn't be, but it is. And so knowing there's a better version out there, I think, has really exposed what disappoints me about the, this this movie and so you know it's not the end of the world it's just sad that was just the scratching the surface answer we're still in we're still in the the uh <laughs> we haven't gotten to the deep dive yet
2: yeah and and i'll say you know everything that you both have said is also 100% totally valid and i understand exactly why you would both feel that way i'm not you know like i'm not going to sit here and Say that your your opinions are wrong, obviously. You know, uh, I, I think there's a ton of valid criticisms across the whole prequel trilogy, the whole prequel project and this movie. And I think there's a lot of things that Clone Wars does to attempt to fix some of those things. And I don't know that it's possible for it to be successful. I mean, if they announced tomorrow that, you know, for the next 10 years, Dave Filoni was going to work on remaking all nine Star Wars movies as animated television series. I'd be on board with that. You know, I mean like I, I feel like animated Do shows. Do you know
1: something? Is that gonna happen? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I I don't know anything. If it does happen, you know, I'll I'll be there. But uh, but the Clone Wars and Rebels and Bad Batch and, and Andor, I think are you know a lot of it's are a good argument for that Star Wars to get the to the depth of storytelling that they want to get to television is a is a better medium for it than films in some ways and i think you know there's a lot of choices along the way in the prequel trilogies that or or in the prequel trilogy that affects this movie so like you know deciding lucas deciding to cast anakin as nine years old in the phantom menace as opposed to 14 like he was originally written changes that movie a lot and then it it also impacts these movies and That means, like, having Anakin then being nineteen in Attack of the Clones as opposed to twenty-four also changes the way he acts in that movie and the way that he behaves in that movie and the decisions that he makes. And you know, the Tusken Raider thing is a big problem, which which Clone Wars also does not really address that much because they can't. Like, there's no way to to paper over that and make it make sense.
0: So this was something. Do you want to? move into the deep dive before we I, discuss
2: this
1: uh i don't know
0: where we're ending this segment is yeah. <laughs>
1: well i mean i i just i mean yeah we do and i just want to say i think i think it's really great you know so this is the third day you hear these things coming up over and over again and you know we're a community of people who know each other you know and, and we've had a lot of discussions on our discord which by the way if you're hearing this and you're not on our discord and you'd like to be contact us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail or on Twitter at monkeybacklog. But the point is here that these these big ideas that we have about Star Wars, three or four of which you just said, Ryan, that <laughs> you know, you will hear eventually I mean you were the producer. I know you were there, so I know you know, but that we've talked about. And it, it just it to me it really when you hear people independently come to the same conclusion. It, it makes you feel good about yourself if you also came to that conclusion. That's all I'm trying to say. I feel good. I feel
2: good. I enjoy that the monkey off my backlog community is made up of very smart, intelligent, well-considered individuals. <laughs> it, just generally speaking on many, many subjects. And Lospert. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I, I. That's one of the reasons I really was excited because originally I was skeptical of doing mm-hmm. Star Wars uh, for this series, mainly because it is such a, it, it's, it's something that can go very bad very fast in terms of the discourse around Star Wars, and I'm not even talking about toxic fandom. Just even like discussing Star Wars in general can devolve very quickly into a lot of just like not great things. And so one of the reasons that I was reassured is that about doing this is that all the people that we're having on that we are talking to all the people in this in this community are very good at finding the good things and then talking about the bad things in ways that are constructive (laughs) rather than in ways that become toxic. Um, And, you know, people have a lot of strong opinions about Star Wars because it's such a long running, beloved franchise. And so it makes sense that people, you know, gravitate to their opinions and think that their opinions are the opinions that matter. But it's, it's very nice to be able to have conversations with this without, like, people's emotions getting really high about it. Um, So I I appreciate that. I
1: I will say it's been very it's been much more difficult than I thought to talk about these movies so far. And I know we're only on movie three. But, you know, including Solo and Rogue One, I like the next six movies, seven movies, really. Mm -hmm. Just I mean, some of them I really, really like. But like, this is the last movie I know I actively do not care for all the way up until nine. But man, it's been a up it is it is hard to talk about uh, i should have you know what i really blame my parents for not getting me into star trek apparently that's a much <laughs> easier thing to like and there's much more of it you know i although disney's trying to fix that but that's okay we, we we did talk a lot about the romance last time and we'll talk about it again here in a little bit but but i'm really more intrigued i know ryan because you're here and you're a. Uh, I, I would, I would say you're the most professional film person of us all, perhaps.
2: Well, thank you. I'll, I'll take that.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's all <laughs> relative, but I, I would still take it. Well, I think so so it is really uh, good to have you tell us about. We love talking about podcasting as a visual medium, but Star Wars is a visual medium, as you say. So um, let's talk a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that goes back to the original trilogy and the first concept of Star Wars, which, you know, I'm sure you guys will talk about at least a little bit is, you know, George Lucas growing up on these uh, movie serials, you know, Buck Rogers um, being a big one. And so it's really calling back to like, forget, like, let's not make things look the best that they need to look that that sort of comes later. The first one is very shoestring, very, you know, like making sure that the sets don't wobble too much when the characters are walking down hallways kind of thing. And, you know, as part of that, but before Star Wars, you know, going back to American Graffiti, going back to THX, going back to his experimental college films, Lucas is a visual storyteller more than a lot of other directors right now I feel like because movies have sort of moved in the direction of television where I feel like writing is getting more prominent as a strength versus you know uh, versus visual direction but like when you watch American Graffiti which I think is actually a very well-written film but again you could watch that with just the visuals and the soundtrack and understand exactly what's happening in every scene and that's how Lucas wants Star Wars to work like, if it wasn't for John Williams, we wouldn't have this franchise, I don't think. Because the music is also very old school. You know, like, at the time, people were pushing into experimental stuff. Like, Tangerine Dream sa- soundtracks were, like, right around the corner for the first for the first movie. And, you know, electronic scores and rock influence scores. And this is a very throwback, you know, 1930s, like, Max Steiner, early film music score from john williams where the music is telling you what to feel in every single scene and in this movie there are some great examples like the uh conversations that anakin and padme are having in her apartment where they're just talking about you know the war and she's like maybe we're on the wrong side and you know she's trying to urge him like look you're friends with palpatine like can't you like try to like you know let diplomatic negotiations resume all of that is undercut with a very like stark, violin, downbeat score. Like it's not a, oh, we're having this passionate argument. It's a like this horrible thing is unfolding and even the people who could stop it can't really stop it. And then when you get to Mustafar, which is one of my favorite examples of like the character on screen uh, or or both characters on screen, their emotions are literalized in the landscape that these, you know, exploding lava flows, all of this passion, all of these very anti-Jedi way things, you know, are literalized on screen. And again, like I think if these movies are being successful, you could watch them again without and ryan johnson actually did put this out for the last jedi you can watch that with just the score and no other sounds uh on the on the blu-ray i think it might be on the the most of the digital versions too but i'm I'm not sure yeah you won't know the names of the characters or like who the different factions are called or all those kinds of you know details that are, are fun but not really necessary to make the story work like you can you can watch it and know what the tone of every scene is
1: you know, that's, it's really funny talking about that. Um, my experience... I, I, you It's know, something I think about when I lived in Japan the year that I did. You know, this was before media was easily portable beyond CDs, but you could still only carry so many of those. It was definitely before streaming. I had the special... No, I didn't have the special edition that didn't exist yet. I had the original four, uh, four CD box set. And... My favorite was always Return of the Jedi after Jabba. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've watched Return of the Jedi but not bothered with the 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 Tatooine parts, which, you know, makes me very much like Luke Skywalker in ways. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, so you just cue up the soundtrack there and you can, like, relive the, you know, if you got a decent imagination, you can just rewatch the movie in your head because I'd seen it enough times. But, you know, like I said, the said, the score would take you through. But then the other thing that you just reminded me of is, you know, when you're in a country that has such a dramatically different language, uh, you know, I, one of the easiest ways I learned Japanese was I could, I watched a lot of stuff in Japanese without subtitles sometimes because they weren't available or were English subtitles anyway. I used Japanese subtitles to help me figure out how to read as well. But I, when I left, I understood tone a lot more than I did vocabulary. That's why I was I was much better at listening in that language than I was speaking, for exactly the reason that you say. And I, I to hear you talk about it, it's it's a skill set not just for the filmmaker, but for the for the person watching the film too. And I, I think maybe that helps me talk about who George Lucas was making the film for. You know, when he's making it for '50s kids, as I said the other, as I said for the Phantom Menace that also assumes an audience that is much more familiar with that style of filmmaking and understands that. And I mean, we weren't really in a strong writing place in the 90s, unless your name's Aaron Sorkin and you're writing The West Wing, but that's cocaine there. So, But I think we were kind of in some, I don't know, I feel like growing up, maybe we were in some middle ground between those different kinds of storytelling. I think that's really interesting. But but Tessa, I know you wanted to talk about lava visuals too.
0: I absolutely agree. The one thing that I love about this movie is the shot composition. Like there are so many, like just, there are scenes from this movie that just live rent-free in my mind. And one of them is, of course, the scene on Mustafar where they're fighting and then they both like are shoving each other. Like there's no, like they're not, their lightsabers are not touching. Like they are just like, purely shoving each other in front of this like exploding lava and it's just such a like wonderfully and you know like the score really underscores you know what's happening here and it's very much like their relationship on screen like in one image and there's a lot of that in this film and we talked yesterday about how the lighting in attack of the clones actually isn't very good it's not a very well-lit film this is a very well lit film. Like there are so many really great moments of like Anakin sitting, you know, on the on for some reason I keep saying that the Jedi Temple is very like floor puff heavy in their decor, but like Anakin sitting on the floor puff with uh with Yoda and you can see the blind, you know, shadows very noir across his face and like, you know, there's just all these shots like that and it really I think that that's the strongest part of the film like you say Ryan because you do get so many emotions that are just not very well said in the dialogue that just you can see them on the film itself so I definitely agree the the visuals are better in this particular one and I mean John Williams is John Williams He can make anything sound good um so like you know it's just I I also really loved the return of the duel of the fates from from the Phantom Menace wonderful everything's great there
1: just just a really quick thing. Do either of you know the Queen song Mustafa? It's on yep, it's yep. on jazz. Yeah, it's the one that yeah, it's mostly in Arabic. It's mm-hmm. it's very heavy on his vocals. That's what I think of every time I see this planet. I just hear that song in my head and it works too cuz it's the the pacing of this is it's just Anyway.
0: Yeah, no, I could see that for sure. <laughs> the other thing I will say, just to go back to what you said earlier, Ryan, about like the Lucas relying on like a certain set of images from like his childhood or like things that he grew up on. I didn't notice this until we watched, and I didn't mention it yesterday, but I didn't notice this until we watched the documentary From Puppets to Pixels. And he said it like as he was like telling them what to do with the uh CGI Yoda that Yoda when he pulls out his lightsaber, he does a Clint Eastwood where he like pulls his his robe open before he like pulls the lightsaber out. And he does it in this film, too. And uh, that kind of attention to detail, I think, is actually where Lucas excels. Like he is very good at being like, no, this is how this person should move or this is how this should look. This is how I want this character to be reflected in the visuals. Unfortunately, I don't know if he knows how to make those images as cohesive as he would like them to be in terms of storytelling
1: let's stay with some more visuals then let's talk about my personal favorite unfortunate visual in this film and maybe we can work backward from it vader as as frankenstein's creature right i mean like come on it's alive dude yeah i mean so like but i but i like the idea of of working backward from that and actually, I want to hear what you think about that, right? I know um, I want I I want to guess what you want what what you're thinking, but I actually should just wait and hear you say it.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it's funny. I definitely I mean I was aware of Frankenstein, and I had certainly seen Young Frankenstein before I had seen this movie, <laughs> but I had not seen the original Frankenstein movies until I had seen this movie. You know, half a dozen times at least, if not more. Personally, I think it's a really fun homage. The the no. You can argue with I I'm used to it now. Like it's hard never because it's Yeah, I, I know it bothers some people, but I think what I what I, I like it. I enjoy the 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 nod to it. I like it's a very heavy handed, but I still enjoy it. I think what I enjoy even more about that sequence is the cross cutting between the birth of the twins and the birth of Vader And like the Frankenstein piece is just a nice little nod of showing sort of the dark side of the force and how it can be aligned with science and technology for dark side purposes and extending life and, you know, robotics, which again, like we have, I put in the notes because one of my favorite things about this movie is, you know, you have Count Dooku, who's like the regal Sith Lord played by Christopher Lee, who's amazing and even in this one scene he there's a range of emotions he goes through in the like three and a half minutes that he's in this movie. And then you have General Grievous who is one of my favorite Star Wars characters you know and they're both if you kind of smush them both together that's how you get Darth Vader because he presents as this regal aristocratic he's got the the you know they both have capes but you know he's got the big cape but he's got this robot body and inside he's a squishy hurt person who will never never heal because his body is not allowed to heal. And therefore his mental state is also not allowed to heal. And he is just a broken person for the rest of his life until the very end of Return of the Jedi. And I think using Frankenstein imagery to kind of drive that home and really cast Palpatine in the role of the, the Mad Doctor in a way, you know, I, that really works for me you know, again, if someone says it's heavy handed and obtuse, like, I'm not going to disagree with their opinion. But uh, that's, that's what I like about it. But uh, again, the cross cutting between the birth of Vader and the birth of Luke and Leia really is like, that is the best part of that, that sequence to me.
0: I will also I agree. I actually the no never bothered me because Star Wars is full of messy bitches. And Anakin is one of the messiest. And so like, I mean, Not to get too far into it, but like this happens to him on the planet of Mustafar and he's still living there by the end of this, his arc in this series. Like that, that takes a certain personality to like live on the planet where this happened to you. The only bitch that I think is On the planet where
1: it happens. On the planet where it happens. This is like Hamilton.
0: (laughs) The only bitch messier than Anakin is Darth Maul, but we're not going to get into that right now. So, like, yeah, I think that I really, it doesn't bother me at all. To, you know, I love Frankenstein. So, like, this all works for me. But I also think it's interesting in the context of what we know about robotics and cyborgs and so on in the Star Wars universe, because Vader really is one of the first full cyborg characters that we have, besides Grievous, like you said. And both are presented to us as being fairly monstrous in their in their construct, because usually you have droids and you have the organic uh, beings of the Star Wars universe and usually never shall the twain meet. In fact, the Clone War is literally a war between droids and inorganic beings, right? And so... Without getting too much into droid politics, which I don't think Star Wars knows what to do with droid politics, really. I mean, it kind of tries occasionally to make a gesture at it, but it doesn't really know what it's doing. There is really this sense that, you know, it's fine that Anakin and Luke can lose an arm and, you know, have a a robotic arm to replace that. But when you start getting to the point where like you're extending that life beyond its natural limit or most of you is more machine than you are organic and that it's your choice to be that way, um, especially with Grievous, who we find out in the Clone Wars kind of did this to himself. I think that that is a really interesting take on like a cyborg type character, because it is this idea that this is monstrous. You shouldn't be doing this. This is mixing technological with the organic in a way that is not meant to be, which also kind of plays into those Frankenstein themes.
2: Yeah, and it's, it, it's, you know, all, all of those, both of those characters are always in pursuit of more power and extending their life so they can get more power. And, you know, you have Palpatine sort of at the top of this pyramid, keeping himself, quote, unquote, pure by not doing that. And, you know, maybe extending his life in other ways, you know, as Dominic Monaghan might reference in, rise of Skywalker, you know and i think it's star wars androids. again that's a whole separate topic but it is weird that this is a universe where as a human being you can be a bartender but you cannot be a doctor because that is a job for robots
0: yep <laughs>
2: <laughs> i think that's a really it's a really interesting track especially when it gets to luke and him getting his synthetic hand at the end of empire strikes back and there's that moment in return of the jedi where he looks at it and he sees. You know, it's all about that premonition of like, I could become who Vader is, if I keep going down this path. And you know, the losing of the limbs in this case, sort of represents that pursuit of more power that need for violent conflict to drive yourself forward into, you know, bigger and bigger positions of power within the galaxy it's really interesting and it's again like that's that's a choice that i feel like works regardless as to whether or not you're working backwards from the original trilogy or not
1: i heard something the other day and i didn't say anything about it at the time but i heard something that surprised me and i think there's always been something that's bothered me about the way a lot of folks talk about the original trilogy and i think i finally heard why for the first time and i think it's what uh i think it's a big part of this this uh the cross-cutting that you mentioned in that particular scene in episode three, but I, I think you could say the whole last final act. One of the things that really gets me about the original trilogy, and you know, I think Lucas gets the credit for starting this and then other people really do good work with it. And it's a holdover from a lot of the old serials and we see it happening now and we just assume that everybody knows how to do it. But... You know, in in Star Wars, he is able to cut successfully between what's happening on the Death Star and what the teenagers in the Aluminum Falcon are doing. <laughs> you know, and and and, and of course, the Robot do- Chicken was going to come yeah. up, and he does that as a way of getting to use every wipe in the book. I do know that, but then you take, uh, you start to look at Empire and how we see that play between what's happening on Dagobah and what's happening. Again, with the aluminum falcon. Uh, and then you bring Boba Fett and uh, the bounty hunter scene in. And then in Return of the Jedi, you get that really frenetic third act where you're cutting not just between uh, the throne room and Endor, but then also uh, Lando uh, helming up. <laughs> Lando and Akbar, helming up that, that third story. And just they cut, 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 cut. I did not know that people didn't like that. I love it. It's like the, it's such an adrenaline rush. It is so great. And that's what happens in the third act of Revenge of the Sith as well. And then all of a sudden it gets ground to a halt. But there again, that cross-cutting is used in the scene you described. So it's like this, it's this real emotional. And of course, John Williams is doing the work as well but it's such an emotional roller coaster mm-hmm. i think that it, and, and that really actually helps describe the problem with rise of skywalker i can't keep that for two and a half hours dude you have to stop but yeah i just i think it's really interesting talking about the cross-cutting because that is undoubtedly one of the big strengths here and i think it's taken for granted a lot now it's just like game of
2: thrones is like doing eight things at once did you guys talk about about ring theory already no one of the things I really love about the way that the prequels and the original trilogy, the the Lucas sextet, shall we say, <laughs> interplay with each other, is that it's it's an in it's like a it's a it's a ring. So you go from out to in. So Episode One is actually patched ma- paired up with Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. and so the ending of the you know, the big battle at Naboo, where you have you know the lightsaber duel, you have the ships with Anakin, and you have the uh, Gungans. That's basically the the Endor battle, just on a smaller scale. And then, you know, Attack of the Clones ends with the Imperial March, which is basically where Empire Strikes Back begins. And then this movie, you know, ends with the, I think the first uh, use of Luke's theme in this entire trilogy as Obi-Wan brings him to the Lars homestead for the first time. And so like, there's, there's a dozens of other examples, it would take a whole nother podcast to, to dive into them. But I do think that Lucas is self consciously sort of playing his own hits, and remixing them in a way to drive that emotional storytelling to make those connections and allowing Williams to use that music to bring the things back over and over again, like, attack of the clones. When we first see the clone troopers, it's the same music was as when we first see the droid army in episode one, even though they're on opposite sides of this battle you know, and then we see uh, at the very end the the Imperial March with the clone troopers. And that was one of the few things supposedly that Lucas directly said to Williams, the Imperial March goes here over the sequence. And so he's building this argument showing how the Republic becomes the Empire, sort of in the background and dovetailing with Anakin's story. And there was a much longer version of this movie. And then Lucas cut out everything that didn't relate to Anakin's story. So there's all kinds of other stuff that like, there's a ton of deleted scenes for this movie, but there's even stuff that like wasn't shot or didn't get far enough along for them to include them as deleted scenes. So like, this is a, a big movie and I feel like he almost bit off and maybe did bite off more than he can chew and really had to kind of rein it in. Like, you know, all the whole order 66 sequence is. I mean, kind of amazing. And sup- it, that's also more emotional now, having seen all the Clone Wars, now that we know who those characters are, know their personalities, and we've been, you know, seeing them for multiple episodes, you know, that comes off as way more tragic than like, oh, yeah, a bunch of cool looking aliens that I kind of liked, just because they made cool action figures are, are are getting killed. Like, now those are people I know. Those are friends. Like, <laughs>
1: Yeah. You bring up another thing that I think is very interesting, too. And, and we, we talk about this a lot in the current context because of the, the need many people, including myself at times, express that they need to get off the Skywalkers over there at Disney and, and explore this universe. But the caveat I would offer to that is perhaps one of the things we identify as a weakness in some of these movies is are perhaps the universe's greatest strengths. Those gaps are so large you can drive an entire television series through them, <laughs> which is what Filoni's done, but look at what he's done with it. Mm-hmm. Not just not just telling those stories and 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 having these friends as you very very well put it, he also is the master of the soft retcon as we've as we've talked about and as you've already mentioned,
0: Filoni is not afraid of the retcon. He's really not. I mean, he won't he won't Like, just straight up say that something didn't happen, but he will make it to where you don't ever think about it, like, at all. Although he, I mean, I guess he did do a little bit more stringent retcons, especially with Anakin and Padme's relationship.
2: I do think Lucas deserves a bit more credit for shepherding the first three to four seasons of Clone Wars. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, we talked about how Filoni is a Lucas person. Like, it's not like he just came in and changed everything. Like, he is... A Lucas protege.
2: I know that we know that. I just want to make sure that the other people (laughs) Ah.
1: know (laughs) that. I do want to say really, really quickly that I'm going to give George Lucas credit here for way more than he's due. I'm going to point out that the hallmark of modernist storytelling is to tell a story by telling everything that happens around it rather than the actual story. And but well, the way george lucas tells his stories is god help me a lot like virginia wolf who <laughs> who actually tells a story like a whirlpool where you start at you know that you draw the spiral where it gets smaller and smaller and smaller so the way that that she often tells stories is is through a spiral and you never get to the center the center is the story it's whatever the core is whatever the thing that matters is and, and the way that she does this uh, to the lighthouse is probably the best example of this, where she just goes around and around and around and you know everything about what's happening that is pertinent to the story. But she will never outright tell you what the story is. I think that the Star Wars universe that Lucas has set up is that with some big mistakes in it. But, you know, but, but the thing about it is, is like there's this core of the story. And I think we all have a pretty good grasp on what that core is but there's so much to tell around it and you know that's the thing that you know you compare him to George R R Martin for an instance dude can write thousands of pages i've been told on on this but i don't think there's a, as much room in Westeros to play as there is in in George Lucas's universe and i think that's a real reddit here and i think that's coming out in a lot of things that we've been saying anyway
2: the thing I'm re- I'm really keen to talk about is, and I'm I saw I, I made a note about how, you know, the prequel trilogy is the fall of Anakin, it's the tragedy of the fall of the Jedi, yeah. and, and Tessa immediately wrote a note that was like, basically, is it is it really, <laughs> um, and I so think it's supposed to be, yeah, and and I think it took me a while to, to really understand what it is actually going on because, and I think that explains part part of not total but part of the reception of the prequels yeah. because you know when when i was a kid i had the original trilogy i saw the special edition on on my birthday when i was 11 <laughs> which was amazing and so yeah. you know and then the toys were just coming out like i was coming the star the star wars dark age was ending right right where i was uh growing <laughs> into it which was perfect so but like you How know lucky you are Right. And so playing with playing with my action figures, telling these stories, knowing only Obi-Wan, Yoda and Luke as Jedi, you sort of build in your imagination what the Jedi order is. These are the good guys. These are the guys doing the right thing. And it took me probably 15 years to realize that it's not that the Jedi are the villain, although if you want to if you if you want to couch it that way, go ahead, but The tragedy of the Jedi is not that the Jedi fell. It's that the Jedi became who they became and were able to be defeated by the Sith because of their hubris, because of their uh, adherence to orthodoxy, because of their diehard ruling about attachments. You know, when, like, Anakin's talking to Yoda and he's like, hey, Yoda, this friend of mine has this dream about his wife And she's, like, dying during childbirth. And Yoda's like, man, that sucks. But you know what? You really just got to get over it. And you really got to just, like, let people go and not worry about if they die. You're going to have to
1: power through that.
0: Wait, you (laughs) have to say the Simpsons thing again from yesterday.
2: We tried
1: nothing. And we're all out of ideas.
2: (laughs) you see the relationship here between Anakin and Mace Windu, which I think the Clone Wars does a really, really great job of actually like slowly building that out over the course of its whole run that Mace Windu just doesn't like Anakin and like, doesn't really treat him with any respect. And anytime that Anakin is right, Mace will never give him credit for that. And so by the time you get to like, the one thing that never made sense to me in this movie that I think Clone Wars actually does fix is Anakin going to Mace and being like, look, The Chancellor is the Sith Lord we've been looking for. I want to help you take him down. And then Mace is immediately dismissive, like, Anakin, we'll handle it. I'm going to bring, you know, all of the Jedi Council down on him. We're going to take care of it. Anakin walks in. Mace is the only one alive. And he's like, we need to kill this guy. And Anakin's like, that's not the Jedi way. You know, after being told to spy on the Chancellor earlier in this movie, it's all of these things where the Jedi are basically, like, going against their own core values because Palpatine has manipulated them back into this corner because they're so hesitant to change and orthodoxy and, like, feelings that they're they're so out of touch with their feelings that they can't process this stuff. And so you have people like Anakin who's secretly married, secretly having kids. You have Obi-Wan and Satine, which, again, another parallel that Clone Wars does in a really cool way. These, these things are happening all over the place. Like, the only good Jedi in... The prequel trilogy might be Qui-Gon, you know, because we see later that that the survivors of Order 66, Obi-Wan and Yoda, they have to go through training with Liam Neeson to understand how to actually be a good Jedi and what that actually means. And then Yoda still makes that mistake again with Luke in Empire. And so, like,
1: once again, it's it's because Qui-Gon has a very particular set of skills. I keep saying (laughs) it like he
2: told us. It just took me a long time to understand what Lucas was actually saying about the Jedi and saying about institutions and the way that institutions can be corrupt by the best of intentions, let alone somebody like Palpatine corrupting the Republic itself with his evil intentions. The way that the war is all orchestrated, like it's really hard to see just watching the two movies. Palpatine's plan, which again is another thing that Clone Wars develops a lot more and lets you see A lot more of the pieces that are in play and how he's actually pitting these sides against each other in ways to you know to to play them both against each other to achieve specific outcomes but also that his plan works no matter what happens because he's already in control by the time the war starts and so it kind of doesn't like the particulars almost don't matter for Palpatine's plan it's like you know it's a heads I win tails you lose situation like the war you know Yoda is right at the end of Attack of Clones where he's like We because this war is happening, we've basically already lost. But he doesn't even realize how what that actually even means until he's fighting Palpatine, Sidious on the floor of the Senate. You know, and it really like the more I've dug into Star Wars, the more I've appreciated this trilogy, especially as you know recent events have sort of highlighted how precarious institutions are and in are in in the real world. Uh, I think that this resonates, at least with me, it resonates more and more uh, as time goes on and I get older and I understand things better.
0: Oh, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I that line that Padme has, which is like the only good scene with her in the movie when they're in the Senate and he's we're an empire now. And she says, you know, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. I remember that going through my head so many times during January 6th insurrection. Like, there were so many moments, like, even before all of that happened, where they were, like, arguing on the Senate floor whether they should ratify, like, the election or not. And, like, there was a lot of cheering and stuff from the Republicans. And, like, I I remember thinking about that scene a lot during that time. So I think... The weird thing is, is that what George Lucas is writing about here is really Bush era politics. He's writing about the Patriot Act, but Mm -hmm. somehow what he's writing about has become more relevant over time, which is not something that I think happens with a lot of science fiction authors. Uh, I I can think of maybe a handful where I'm like, yeah, their work is more relevant now than when it was written. But I think the problem with Lucas is that he is doing a very good job of illustrating the problems with the Jedi. But he still loves them. Right. It's it's very much like what you said before about like when you were a kid is that Lucas still has this idea of the Jedi of Luke being like like my I want to be a Jedi like my father before me. You know, like there is this sense that he he loves them. He still wants to think of them as the good guys. And so he's he can't quite let go of that paradigm, I guess. When he should, he should be able to let that go. If he's going to make this point about the fact that the Jedi have essentially become so intertwined with the Senate and with politics that they can't actually complete their original mandate, then you have to kind of start questioning whether or not the Jedi are actually the good guys. I mean, Like you said, maybe they're not the villains, but they're enforcing a certain type of peace and order, right? And the question is who decides that? And the Jedi don't seem to be capable of critiquing that at all. The other problem that I often have with Lucas and these, any any of the Star Wars films, other directors and writers have made this mistake too, is that so much of these films get stuck in false binaries. Like either you do the light side or you do the dark side. There is no middle ground. You either are a Jedi or you are a Sith. And what, what I love about... What some of the things Dave Filoni did, not as much in the Clone Wars, more in Rebels, is that he actually starts to get into this idea that maybe there are people who can't afford to be on either side. Like maybe there are people who are somewhere in the middle. Maybe both sides have it wrong. And I think there are several instances in this, where it kind of rings a little false because there is this moment where Obi-Wan, when he's fighting Anakin, says, I'm on the side of democracy and the Republic. And I'm like, yeah, but should you be like, I mean, don't be on the side of the Emperor either. But like, surely, you know, that this led to this problem. Um, And that's something also that the Clone Wars has done a good job of filling in is like, what are the regular people doing during this? Like, how is this war affecting them? And like, you know, how do they view the Jedi? Turns out not well, like, you know, because there is this sense that the Jedi just care about the rich and powerful and not about them. So I think you're right. This is tragic. This is supposed to be a tragedy. But at the same time, it's hard to see the fall of the Jedi as being tragic if they're part of the problem as well.
2: And that's what I mean by like the the real tragedy is not the end of the Jedi order in a literal sense, but the end of the Jedi adhering to their original mandate, as you say, prior to the events of any of these movies, honestly. And so it's the way that the tragedy is the way that the Sith are able to use the Jedi's hubris and where they've gotten to where their station is within the overall power structures of the galaxy against them. And to blind them with, you know, because it, it comes up a couple times in these movies that like you know, the dark side is clouding our vision. We can't see things clearly. And it's like, yeah, but you're so deep down the rabbit hole that you're in. It might not be the dark side that's clouding your vision. It may be your own you, that you can't even you can't see your hands in front of your face because you're so far off of the path that you're supposed to be. And I, I have to give all credit to, to this bit to uh, Marie Claire Gould, who hosts What the Force, which is my favorite Star Wars podcast. She looks at it on a mythological level. And she talks about, like, Star Wars always presents binaries, but the message is really supposed to be that you need to find your own path between them. Like, that's the whole prophecy about Anakin bringing balance to the Force, is that, like, you can't have light without dark, but you need to find your own path between them. Because if you go too far to the light and you're being, like, completely selfless you know, then you're not being a whole person. And if you're going completely over to your passion and selfishness, however you want to characterize that, you know, then you're not being a good member of the community. And so it is trying to find that third way. And that's, it is almost Luke's line about like, I'm a Jedi at the in Return of the Jedi is almost unfortunate because the idea should be that Luke does find his own path through the galaxy. And I feel like it's the reason Ahsoka is so popular is because that's what that character is actually representing at least through clone wars and rebels is that, you know, she's doing the right things. She's sometimes allied with a side, but she is really just trying to find where she can make the most impact for good in, in the galaxy. And I think, I think you're right that, you know, sometimes Lucas has, is just limited by, you know, being, uh, you know, a fifties child, white, male and he is more progressive than a lot of other people of his generation but i do agree that you know he definitely has shortcomings based on his own you know place in in the world and society and everything else but i do think that the jedi are as responsible for anakin's turn to anakin's becoming vader as the sith are and that's 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 the thing about this movie uh and again with with an assist from clone wars that you know, has made this one of my favorites, because it is so like, that's, that's where my emotions all come through. And, you know, that final fight where Obi-Wan is like, you were my brother, Anakin. Like, Anakin didn't really need a brother, like he needed a dad, you know, because he'd ever had a dad. And because Liam Neeson got killed at the end of that movie, like, mm-hmm. you know, and then Obi-Wan should have been a father figure to An- Anakin has no father figures, he's figuring this out on his own. And, you know, that conversation with him and Yoda about his dreams, uh, when my wife and I were rewatching this last night, she's like, yeah, like, Anakin's going to Yoda, because he knows what Yoda's going to say. And then he can justify yeah. continuing to do th- what he wants to do. Because if he went to Obi-Wan, he'd have to have an honest conversation about it. <laughs> Whereas he know that Yoda's just going to brush him off and be like, yeah, well, you know, the, the thing is to not miss people w- after they're dead. Like, if you do that, you're, you're fine. Which is as we, I mean, I think as we know from all just being people, that's the exact wrong lesson <laughs> to learn.
0: That's sociopathic, think, like, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear all the discussion about binaries. I would say the, the one thing I, while not claiming that anything either of you said is anything but absolutely kind of the way to see this, I would point out that Aronin is still a samurai. And and that's that. I mean, that's the real trick to Ahsoka, is it's 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 the dogma, not the identity, um, that that I think means, that signifies. Right. It doesn't really matter. Um, it is the rejection of a label, right? Um, and and it's even more powerful because even if other people are always going to call you Jedi, if you feel safe and secure in your own identity that's powerful. And that is a reflection for a lot of people today, you know, who, who want to be labeled by other, who other people want to label as one thing. And then you say, well, I know I'm not that I'm this. And I think Ahsoka is such a strong reflection of that, which is what I think, uh, Ryan, you're trying to get at there and, uh, for sure. Uh, but you know, the thing that the thing that really gets me, I keep going back to something that Matt said in the Phantom Menace because Matt questioned a lot of the political stuff that happens in the Phantom Menace, whether or not it's there because Lucas put it there or it's there because we see it. And I, I, as I told Matt, I absolutely no, Lucas put that in there very clearly. But when we start talking about things that happen in episodes two and three, I'm like, I'm not so sure. Like, you know, at one hand, on one hand, Padme is this savvy political leader. But then in the next movie, she's like, I will throw it all away to raise these children in secret with you. Okay. I really don't want her to be in charge of everything. If she'll leave at the drop of a dime. And, and, but I'm like, I don't know that that, that juxtaposition is purposeful. Like I'm not going to like judge her as a character. Cause I think that's where the cracks are showing through in what Lucas does. But to me, that brings up an even more powerful issue that I hear while all of you, well, both of you, are talking, is that we see so much of these characters in these characters that may not be there. The politics in Phantom Menace, those are there, but I, I sometimes I wonder how much we put onto these characters, and and if you, and we'll talk much more about this later on, but you know, the original trilogy, I grew up during the dark times that you referenced, Ryan. And, you know, so all we had, I mean, like when, when that, when Air to the Empire came out, it was a big deal. It was like more Star Wars. I didn't know you could do this. Um, you know, so just really looking at just those three movies when I was young, I think about all the things that I learned from Star Wars, um, you know, all the way down from, from, uh, Campbell, you know, the hero's journey, uh, to Jungian archetypes, you know, how the collective unconsciousness can really work through storytelling. I mean, I didn't know what those things were called. I do now. But those things are powerful. They mean a lot. The The power of juxtaposition, that's what the cross-cutting gets you. I mean, you can really use those original films as text to really understand a lot about the way that we process the world around us. And I don't care how much he did on purpose or how much he had help from other people. I just can't underestimate those things. And, and you know... And then I go to the prequel and, and the trilogy, and this is really where I get caught up with the prequel trilogy, is I can really talk to you very easily about the big ideas of the original trilogy, but I find it, I, I can acknowledge all the things that we've talked about about the prequels. But to me, it comes down to Anakin. This is Anakin's story. And I think that's what Lucas tells us too. I mean, not just through the the movies, but he's told us literally, this is Anakin's story. It's part of the bigger Skywalker story. I am very invested in Anakin's story as a person who grew up in a very particular way with a very particular mindset. And it's not very difficult to see how much of my own uh, upbringing is grafted onto this, my, my need to believe in the story. I, I don't believe I would end up as a Sith. So that that is problematic for me. But these issues that come up in uh, Revenge of the Sith, if you know anybody like Anakin Skywalker at that age, like me, you will know the person that everyone gets along with and admires, you will not get along with because you'll see something different and they will see something different in you. This happened to me with, with, I can think of one particular teacher in undergrad who was like this for me. And I just didn't understand. I didn't get it. But it's very much like Mace Windu acts in this this story. And it comes down to what we saw about Anakin earlier in life. If I think this rule is bullshit, you better explain it to me or I will not follow it. And nobody wants to explain things to him. And it turns out it's because they don't know. That's the real trick here and that's that's what feeds into the tragedy here but I, uh, I i guess what i'm saying is all the things that that uh, both of you have talked about however long it was before i started talking are so much better if they're not mixed up in the anakin skywalker tragedy that george lucas is very intentionally writing and writing it poorly it's hard to see the forest through the trees in in this case for me i, I i'm like everything you're saying is great but Anakin Skywalker still gets, it's not right.
0: Yeah, it's not right. <laughs> so I don't want to retread a lot of ground that we did yesterday because we I talked a lot yesterday about how the Jedi don't do emotions very well and that their whole attachment thing is bullshit. So I don't want to go through that again. But this is, I feel like, first of all, I, I meant to mention this earlier, but I need to mention it now. I think that one of the issues with this prequel trilogy is that Mace Windu is miscast. I think that, Mace Windu fools us into thinking he's cool because Samuel L. Jackson is playing him. But Mace Windu is not a good person and he is not a cool person at all. And I actually think uh, Tales of the Jedi did a really good job of actually telling us who this person is. He's a narc, yeah. And uh, so yeah, I think that that's part of the problem as much as I love Samuel L. Jackson and I really wish that like he would be in another star wars thing as like a completely different character. Um I think that he, that is a problem is that we don't realize how horrible he is because of who he's being played by. That being said, Anakin again once again has very bad characterization. Um we talked yesterday about how the Tusken Raider genocide plot line is a bad pacing issue. Like there should be he should not be doing stuff like that before he is with Padme, before... You know, like, it, it doesn't work narratively in order for that to happen. So this this movie does kind of the same thing where it wants us to... It wants to show us that he's going to become Vader, but it doesn't do it in a way that is natural. Um, it does it in, like, these fits and bursts of just like, oh, he's going to do something bad, and then he's going to do something more bad, but he's going to be conflicted about it, and then suddenly he's not going to be conflicted about it. And again, I think... Clone Wars does a better job of this but the really interesting thing to me about Anakin storyline in this is actually and I've thought about this before but I saw it a lot on this rewatch is his relationship with Palpatine because I talked yesterday about how Palpatine is able to manipulate Anakin because he is one of the few people that actually does support Anakin Um, unlike most of the Jedi he is somebody who is like you matter you know you're you're a good person you're going to be a great jedi obviously he's sort of flattering him but at the same time like if you don't have support that's what support looks like and i think that what palpatine is doing and i i want to say this very carefully but what palpatine is doing to anakin in revenge of the sith is abuse like he is creating a situation in which Anakin has to rely on him as the only person who knows him and supports him. He cuts him off from what little support system Anakin has, There's a term that a lot of abuse survivors use, which is deny, attack, and reverse victim and defender. And Palpatine nails that. Like, he denies what he's doing. He attacks other people and say that they're actually doing what he's doing. He reverses himself into the victim rather than the person who's attacking. Um, And so I think that that is a very interesting thing that George Lucas brings into this. I don't know if he meant to do that in any sort of way or if that's like... Ian McDermott, who is doing like a really good job in this or or what that is exactly. But he does such a great job of showing how this person is able to play on Anakin's insecurities, play on the fact that he doesn't have a lot of support institutionally in order to isolate him and get him to do things that he wouldn't normally do. And I'm actually really interested to see if I can draw this line of thinking through their relationship in return of the jedi as well because there is always this question of why anakin continues to stay with palpatine and why he doesn't overthrow palpatine which is what he says he's going to do in revenge of the sith
2: I agree with everything that you said Tessa and the since the the Marvel Disney or since the Disney takeover of Lucasfilm the Marvel comics have done I think it's on the third run of Darth Vader comics right now. The first one was in between A New Hope and Empire. The middle one was between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. And then this current run is between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And they all have this sort of thing where like at the end of A New Hope, Vader's kind of knocked down a peg. He has to build himself back up. Palpatine is sort of the antagonist of the series overall because he is constantly chiding him and goading and, you know, goading Vader and undercutting him and making him deal with all these ridiculous challenges over, over and over again. And it, it, it really plays out that relationship as a cyclical, as the cycle that you explain Tessa over and over again. So if that's in return of the Jedi, I'm not sure, but it's definitely something that star Wars authors who have sort of picked up the torch Recently, have certainly keyed into and expanded upon uh, those comics are all really good and really interesting. The current arc has Vader teaming up with former handmaiden of Padme because they both want to take down the Emperor, and uh, because the handmaiden wants revenge for Padme's death and kind of also figures out that that's Anakin in in the suit. Like it's it goes to very interesting places and really sort of draws. Anakin's entire storyline together in a really succinct and clear way that I don't think the movies actually do but because it's a comic it's able to like like there's a there's one where it's just half the issue is him flashing back to moments from the prequel trilogy and sort of lining them up and being like look this is all in here but it's not necessarily focused upon because you know whether For whatever reason, I don't know. I mean, Lucas was making these as, like, very expensive, independent movies, so it's not like he had to answer to anybody. You know, I still think he has a very commercial mindset to his filmmaking overall, despite his, you know, avant-garde and his instincts in that direction. I do think he is actually also very instinctually commercial in his choices. But, yeah, it's... there's And and that's the thing. Like, there's... This is a... Especially to me with this movie, this is why I I wanted to do this movie with you guys. It's because there is a... A bottomless well of things that we could talk about and dive into for better and for worse, because I do think that some I will agree that some of it sort of takes away from the clarity. And I do think your point about casting Samuel Jackson about Mace Windu, like I don't, I think a lot of people were reacting in real time and not understanding why they felt that way about those Jedi characters. Because it's confusing, you know. It, it we're getting mixed messages, and I think I think those mixed messages are deliberate and actually super interesting and kind of subversive in a way. Yeah. But it is really confusing.
1: <laughs> it's it's been very interesting, and I don't know if it's simply the passage of time, or if it's what's happened in the last three or four years, or. If it's been conversations we've had with each other and with other people we know, it's probably all of those, to be honest, but it is a bottomless well, but we will not touch the bottom of that today. Is there one other deep dive topic we can touch on before we move on? Anybody? Anybody? Can we talk
0: about Padme? Can we
1: talk about Padme? I don't know. Can we?
0: We haven't talked about her yet. and. It's honestly the worst thing that this movie does. I mean, I think I mentioned it at the beginning, but the whole, like, she dies of a broken heart, like, come on. Like, I just, she is such a, like you said, Sam, a savvy, like, politician in, like, the first two films and in The Clone Wars. Like, she's really great, and I think they kind of almost redeem it in The Clone Wars. But, like, the idea that someone like this would just give up and die of sadness, like, seems very out of character for this person, she, her whole role in this is reduced to, like, the tearful wife who is maybe in, like, a 1950s relationship with Anakin, like, which does also seems very out of character. Like, he keeps saying things like, like, she keeps saying things like, I want to go home and get the thing ready for the baby instead of, like, talking about this whole political situation that's going to hell. And, like, it just... It really bothers me because she so much pressure is put on her in these films as like the female character of these films, or I'm sorry, as the woman character in this film, because there aren't really any others. I mean, that is one of the other things we talked about Dave Filoni doing is that he creates a lot of really great women in, in the Clone Wars who get to maybe share that burden of representation a little bit more. But especially because she has kids, like it really bothers me because it's like, oh, I'm going to give up on life because Anakin is evil now, and I guess my kids are just on their own. Like, there's just, like, a lot in there that doesn't make sense to me, and, like, I get that Lucas is probably thinking from, like, a classical sense of what a tragedy is, but it makes... It just seems like it goes completely against this character that has been created over the first two films. I don't know what you all think of this. Yeah,
2: no, I... I... If I'm being charitable, I would say that, that there's a big blind spot of Lucas. Um, again, as my wife has pointed out on a number of occasions, like in a galaxy where we can replace people's limbs, we shouldn't be finding out that someone's having twins like as they're giving birth.
0: Yeah. Especially ah, when ah, some ah. of those people have force abilities too. <laughs> right. So
2: there's a lot... So I, I do think there's a blind spot. I also do think that like if, you know, for especially parts of Attack of the Clones and this movie, if like, you know, uh, Lucas had brought in like Douglas Sirk to direct them, because uh, I think that's what he's going for is that sort of classic melodrama. Uh, I think they would have come off better because I do think Douglas Sirk does a lot better job with uh, women characters <laughs> than Lucas does. I I wish, I wish do wish Padme had more to do. I You know, it's it's one of the things that I feel like would have been helped by the dropped subplot about the start of the rebellion because uh, Genevieve O'Reilly, who is Mon Mothma on Andor was cast originally in that role for this movie before getting brought back for Rogue One. And she's in one of the deleted scenes that's on Disney plus and on the Blu-ray and stuff uh, where she meets with Jimmy Smits. And I think Padme is in the scene where they're all talking about, you know, how they're going to resist the Empire and like sort of laying foundations for that stuff to come later, um, but there's there's nothing for her to do here other than to be tragic and tearful. And I think Natalie Portman does a great job with what she's given, but she I would definitely agree that she's not given a lot. My personal fan theory uh, around her death though is that it is Palpatine taking her life force and putting it into Anakin, and that's that's why the cross cutting is there. It for one, re- one reason why the cross-cutting is there, to so try to imply that he's taking away her life to keep Anakin alive.
1: That really goes well with, I, and I even asked Tessa, I was like, is Palpatine giving Anakin those dreams? And and Tessa said, no, that's the whole point, because that happened with, you know, it happened with his mom, and, and uh, you know, the the Jedi do tell him, they do explain it,
0: Well, that's the one thing that Yoda gets right. He just doesn't give the right emotional response to it, which is because it happens to Ahsoka in the Clone Wars too, where she gets like a vision. And then like uh, Yoda says essentially the same thing where he's like, Force visions about the future are really hard to interpret because you don't, t- like time is a really difficult thing to think about, like all the different factors that go into something happening. And sometimes when you try to stop something from happening, you can actually cause it to happen. And so I think that that's the point is that Palpatine is capitalizing on something that isn't reliable, but because it came true once, Anakin sees it as more right. reliable than he probably should.
1: Okay. But the one with Obi-Wan in it, that was Palpatine.
0: Yeah, you cannot convince me. That was definitely something me. like that. That was No, Freudian. that was um, totally
1: like, that was him fucking with Anakin to push him over the edge because he needed it to happen now. That's, I'm convinced. Um, <laughs> I,
2: I, I mean, I, I will say in, in Tessa's favor that if Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Padme had been a thruple, everything would have gone Jesus, a lot better. Come yeah! on. <laughs>
0: Yesterday let's in talk. the attack of the clones, but when they're all on the little beast together running around, I'm like, that's a throuple. Let's, let's right talk
1: there. about the Clone Wars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, okay. Honestly, let's, let's move on. And let's talk about just a little bit, for a little bit, meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine, our segment where we talk about other elements that are happening in the Star Wars universe around this time. And, and I wanted to focus just a little bit on the, specifically, the last, I believe it's four episodes of season seven of The Clone Wars, otherwise known as The Other Revenge of the Sith, which begins, and I had forgotten this, but Tessa never forgets, this is the one, the string of episodes that begins with Filoni saying, I am the Star Wars, because he brings up that Lucasfilm film. And Limited mm-hmm. at the beginning Green, of the season. Yeah, there's a, oh yeah. man, what a better episode three! This is.
0: I mean, I have thoughts, Question but I'd mark? like to hear Ryan's thoughts on the final <laughs> season of the Clone Wars.
2: Yeah, I so I love the Clone Wars. It's funny, I saw the Clone Wars film when it premiered in theaters because I was like, oh, there's a new Star Wars movie in the theater. How often is that going to happen in the rest of my life? I should go. And then I watched it, and I was like, oh, this is for like children, children. I don't need to worry about this series, and like I missed most of the original run until I started hearing like you know stuff online about how good it was, and then I, I it fear, was when the movie they, is
0: very bad.
2: It, it is, and it, yeah. they figured it out the show like in the first season, you can kind of tell, and I think it wasn't until the the first final season on Netflix was coming, uh, which is now season six, where I was like, oh, I, I should catch up and watch it because at the time I think they were all streaming on there. But anyway, I. I would love, I would actually love, if I had the time, I would love to actually watch a version of these episodes and Revenge of the Sith that intercut between the two, because I think that would be be awesome. Yeah, that to me is the ultimate version of this movie. And I think, again, you know, having so much more time to develop Ahsoka, to develop Anakin and even Obi-Wan, even though like, I feel like he's the most static character throughout the series. I think you know again sort of builds a bridge in a real literal way between the two movies where there's this big gap and the characterizations and and all those kinds of things and you know like i was saying before it makes the order 66 sequence in the movie a lot more emotional for me uh because like yeah before when i would watch i'd be like wait what planet is that like oh that's a cool design and like it goes by so fast but when you know who those people are you know it hits a lot harder. And I think the same goes for this because we've seen Ahsoka's journey from being, you know, even from being older than Anakin, but younger than Luke at the beginning of the series, uh, you know, at their introductions, she has grown up, you know, and the clones have sort of grown up with her in a lot of ways, especially, you know, uh, Rex and some of the other more recurring clone characters. And, you know, tying that into Darth Maul and all the, the Clone War, all the stuff Clone Wars does with Darth Maul, which really makes him a character, is it's just super fascinating. And you know, again, bringing in the the Mandalore stuff because Clone Wars has a spends a lot of time on Mandalore, developing those characters and that society, and building out that world and giving us a real sense of what that means. And so, like, we understand so much more in this whole final run of episodes than we do in the movie because we understand like what the culture of Mandalore is like. We understand what it means for the Republic to show up there. We understand what it means for the separatists to try to invade. And we understand what it means to Ahsoka, who's now no longer in the Jedi Order, to stay and fight. Like we under like the stakes are just the emotional stakes are much more immediate and much deeper at uh in terms of resonance because we spent all, all this time. And I think I think Ahsoka is sort of a you know, is sort of a challenge to Anakin because she goes through a lot of the same things that he goes through. But she actually has a better support system because, you know, even though she's been sort of betrayed by the Jedi and they realize that she was falsely accused and all this kind of stuff, she's she's wary, but like having the clones there who are, even though they don't appear, are younger than her, really. Like they're kind of peers in sort of like maturity. You know she has the, them to lean on, and I think I didn't even—I don't think I even realized how deep the connection between Ahsoka and the clones were until I saw that preview for the season where they had painted their helmets to look like her face, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that this all makes sense," you know. And having Maul, someone who has fallen out of the Sith Order, you know, sort of become a a mirror of Ahsoka, and saying, "Hey, we're both—we've both been thrown away by the people who brought us up and told us we were important." You know, we should ally together because we have interests in common and we'll be able to survive whatever's coming. And her being like, no, I still need to be true to the person I was raised to be, even though the people who raised me abandoned me. And I think that is a very powerful message. And It's at least one I identify with because I feel like I have better values than my parents act. But they are the ones who instilled those values in me, especially when it comes to things like race and certain you know, certain other topics where I have conversations with my mom, and I'm like, and she's like, oh, like, you know, you were raised differently than I was. And I was like, yeah, but you, you're the one who taught me to believe these things, (laughs) even though you yourself have a hard time believing them. And I think, I think that really, that's really powerful to me. And I think, you know, beyond all the, the action being well done, and, you know, I specifically really love the use of Rex and Ahsoka not killing the other clones in that final sequence, like that raises my emotional level so much more because that tells me that you know Felony and the characters they want us to see those clones still as human beings like as people that matter because they're they're being forced to do something against their will that they don't even understand why they're doing it and so that again also sort of reflects all of the abuse and grooming of Palpatine and Anakin like this is again Palpatine you know coercing people and manipulating people to do enact his will even though they don't even really know why. And so it I think it touches on a lot of the same themes but brings them out in a much different way.
0: Absolutely. And I don't have a lot to add because I think you've you've encapsulated why the final season is so good. I mean the whole show is good and before the final season, you have that storyline with Fives, the clone who finds out about the chip inside all of the, the clone's heads that caused them to do 66. And he's basically gla- gaslit and then killed to keep that a secret. And it's like horrifying because you've known this clone since the beginning of the series. But I will also say that the scenes between Anakin and Ahsoka at the very beginning before she goes off to, to go after Maul, it also really... It really makes Anakin even more of a tragic figure because Ahsoka loves him and like because Ahsoka loves him. I mean, she calls him her her brother, like in a way that I actually think makes sense. Like he is part of that support system you talked about, even though he doesn't have his own support system. But the idea that he like gives her the lightsabers. Right. And like he he's like there for her, even though he knows he's he, you know, even though we know he's going to to betray everyone. and. I also really loved the styling of the last two episodes, which feel like a horror film. Like the whole Order 66 double episode, like even just the shot composition and the music and the beats in those episodes. I want Star Wars to do more genre. Like I just I really do actually want them to do more genre. And that was just a really fun turn in the genre in a way that felt very earned because you have that sense of dread going into that, you know, ending. So yeah, I think this is wonderful. And I would probably watch it again over Revenge of the Sith, to be honest with you.
1: Well, I'll say what I started to say, some of what I started to say yesterday, which is that it says a lot that Dave Filoni, knowing full well what happened in Revenge of the Sith and Attack of the Clones could make it so that you see that Ahsoka Tano learned so much from Anakin and that Anakin was a better teacher, even though what's going to happen is going to happen. He was a better teacher to her than anybody was to him. And how did he know to do that? He didn't. He just did what he thought was right. And that means a lot. I had the opposite experience of you, Ryan. I once said to my my mom well, about a decade or so ago, I said, you know, you never really told me about this, this or this. And I had to figure it out on my own. And she said, we just thought you knew everything and we didn't need to tell you anything. <laughs> and so, I mean, once again, I mean, the, the I really do feel, you know, just seeing that and just seeing like, wow, how can somebody who had such bad teachers become such a good teacher? There's, there's more there. This, this dude would not take out a bunch of Tusken Raiders. Nor would Padme marry somebody who had. Just to be absolutely clear, but but we talked about that. To go forward, though, what I what what season seven shows me is that the possibilities exist. And I mentioned the Truce of Bakura yesterday, which involves, and I've told you about this, Tessa, uh, Anakin, Force Ghost appearing to Leia, and who lets him have it. She's like Luke can forgive you but there's no no goddamn way I'm going to forgive you for what you did to Alderaan. And and I just think about how often things from the expanded universe have found their way into canon. I cannot wait to see the Anakin Ahsoka conversations. I that is all I want from Star Wars. Is I want that circle to get closed. And and, and and because of what happens in season seven with Anakin and Ahsoka, I know it's there and I know it's possible. And it really is a way of, that is closer to true redemption than anything we've seen. You know, the problem with the redemption and return of the Jedi is once you build the prequels onto it, as as one of our friends recently pointed out, it just don't work. Doesn't work but this is a much more complete narrative that feloni's able to create without backfilling so much which is the main star wars problem right is we're always backfilling
2: yeah i mean if i had if i had one big critique of return of the jedi as a story arc it's that we get vader redemption but we don't get anakin atonement and those yeah. are those are those are two different steps in the process and i think right. knowing that vader will turn back to becoming anakin as part of what makes the clone wars and revenge of the sith so much so emotional for me is like knowing where this ultimately leads and i think that killing anakin off it's too neat and it really has has handicapped the franchise in general from telling a story about redemption which I think is right. the, the I mean, it's baked into Star Wars, but the atonement part, I feel like nobody's really figured out how to do it on screen just yet. And I, I look forward to the day when we get that. And I think the closest we've gotten it so far, not to jump away from Clone Wars is, right. is in Obi-Wan with yes. uh, Mo- Moses Ingram's character. And like, you know, it's, it, it's, Starting down that road, you know, when she, you know, spoiler for Obi-Wan, I guess I should say that because it's relatively new, but, you know, when she saves little Luke uh, at at the end, like that is her, a first big step in atonement right. for her.
1: I think, and and this also comes from Obi-Wan, right? I It gets seeded into episode three and then into season six of the Clone Wars. And then, But this idea of Qui-Gon being the guy who figured out, you know, force ghosting, which is not when you call people back. It's when you actually call them back. It's, for, <laughs> it's really the opposite of regular ghosting. I have a feeling, and it's a very Thrawn feeling, a very Ezra Bridger feeling, if you will, that a story we could get further on down the line is one that more, pun intended tangibly bring up the Force ghosts. And it's not just, you know, I'm here for five minutes to give you advice. I kind of suspect that that there might be something more, uh, a bigger role that those Force ghosts can play in, I don't know what it would be, but I wouldn't rule out the possibility of, of atonement uh, by Anakin in this way. And I would love that. I really hope to see that. That's probably my biggest Star Wars wish, if you will.
0: I do have to say, since we've brought up Obi-Wan and it's not getting into the f- the film at all, this more has to do with Revenge of the Sith. It really pisses me off that Obi-Wan just leaves a burning <laughs> Anakin on yeah. the shore of the Mustafar thing and just assumes that he's dead. Not because I mean... you should always double tap, although that is the case, but because that's just a really shitty way to die. Like, I mean, like on like have a little compassion here like and and so like that scene in uh, Obi-Wan where where Vader tries to do it to Obi-Wan oh, I kind on. of feel like it's a little deserved <laughs> because I'm just like yeah like why didn't you just like chop off his head so he wouldn't suffer like what, what kind of monster are what, you Obi-Wan? Here's
1: what we need we need unfortunately we can't have Padme but we could have Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Anakin, and Luke, and Leia, and Ahsoka, and a fire and a talking stick. (laughs) I don't know how the Force ghosts are going to handle the talking stick. I mean, maybe R2 just points at them, and it's their turn, because R2's there,
2: obviously.
0: obviously. Uh, R2 is leading the group session, clearly.
2: I, oh, (laughs) wait. i mean star wars is basically the maybe the original you know men would rather <laughs> than go to therapy <laughs> <laughs> there's there's you know. so many problems in these movies that could be avoided if people just had heart-to-heart conversations with each other you know and and again like it it it's funny like i'm like talking about sam your your wish for star wars like i i started to get choked up just thinking about what that would mean to me as a person you know and I've I've said it in a half joking way elsewhere, but Star Wars is the closest thing I have to like religion. Where like, yeah. you know, not in that I'm like I I th- think of myself as worshiping, but it's something that I engage with on like a very like as close to a spiritual level as I engage with anything in my life.
1: It was clearly a mistake for us all to talk about this, <laughs> but we did it. We're gonna keep doing it. Okay, all right. Anyway, it's time for Max Rebo's Retcon Corner, which will become, of course. More important later, but here, uh, it still generates some of the same thoughts that we talked about yesterday, but as far as things that have actually been changed, as far as the actual retcons, nothing, this one of the prequels, which all had relatively little changed from theater to home video, this one really has the least amount of uh, Lucas fuckery in it and what we're really left with is questions about what this movie along with attack of the clones does to break do a retroactive retcon of things that have already happened in the original trilogy
2: yeah yeah i mean the, the big one is in return of the jedi when luke and leia are actually having a heart-to-heart conversation yeah. he's like do you remember your mother and she and he's like your your real mother not your adopted mom like your your real mother and leia talks about how like she remembers her being sad and like all so like it was pretty shocking when padme died in episode three the first time i saw it because i was like this completely ruins that unless you really bend over backwards to she
1: remembered that five seconds from when she was born
2: right You know, and and so my and this this applies not just to Star Wars, but to Star Trek, to Marvel Comics, to the Batman mythos at large. The way I sort of approach these the continuity nowadays is what we're watching in our media is the real is not the real version of the events that are being depicted, but they are an artistic reinterpretation of those events. Like basically, they are stories about the real thing that happened and that gives you a lot of leeway to not have to nitpick a bunch of shit um and so like you know what like star trek is is another great example why does the why does it look like the jj abrams enterprise is way more advanced than the original series enterprise even though they're supposed to be the same ship like alternate universe time travel stuff aside it's like okay because there are their depictions of what's really happening and so maybe you know maybe it looked like that maybe it looked completely different but you know it it's it makes it easier to not get hung up on some of the the things i would still want my you know uh fictional universes to operate similar to our own like 90 plus percent of the time but it allows me to forgive a lot of nitpicks or minor incongruities if you do something big you got to explain it but that's that's my theory
0: The only thing about the do you remember your mother, your real mother that gets me is that that would have been such a better use of Padme. Like, I I completely agree with you that continuity, like, I'm not very nitpicky about it, except for I actually have a version of events in which she survives this and leaves Anakin, which I think would have actually been narratively more satisfying. And I think it would have broken Anakin perhaps a little bit more to have her be like, no, you're like you're doing something that's wrong. And like, i can't be part of it. And I'm going to go into hiding and like, you know, all this stuff, and then died somewhere between three mm-hmm. and four. I think that would have been a more satisfying narrative for her. And it would have given her a lot more to do in the film. But that's the only reason I care about the change. Um, but y- like you said, continuity, when you have something with this many moving parts, you're going to have issues for sure.
2: Well, just- but that's, that's the version that I expected to happen was Padme yeah. leaving Anakin. And you know, it, it's funny with the, the line from The Last Jedi, like, you know, that's how we win by saving what we love. And that's what Anakin was trying to do, except he lost big time in a way. Right. So it's no. also, you know, there again, there's all echoes and things from different, you know, things that work in different points of view and different points in time and everything. But, yeah, I, I was expecting Padme to survive this movie, uh, if only because the line.
1: I just want to say this. If it turned out that was a fake death at the end of episode three, people would get upset, and I understand that. But here's—they'll the, get upset about everything, so it's fine anyway. If it was a fake death, that doesn't break continuity; it actually fixes it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, is it so out there? I also want to say, as we as we like to say here on Mumble, no body, no crime. That's true. Mace Windu is still out there. <laughs> Don't want him to be, but he probably still is. Hey, remember the beginning of A New Hope when those droids don't know anything about anything, and Obi Wan is like, "New droid, who dis?"
0: I don't believe it. I, I this was like a really they were trying to be clever and like try to explain something that they had sort of backed themselves into a corner that they had to explain, but it doesn't make. It still doesn't make sense to me that Obi-Wan would just like magically forget who these two droids were or like pretend that he didn't know who these two droids were. So for me, I'm just like, just just do the thing that you did with Padme. Just like pretend that it's fine and it'll be fine. I don't believe that R2 doesn't remember the events of the prequels. Maybe C-3PO because C-3PO only understands about half of what's going on at any given time anyway.
1: I mean, you have to wipe his memory every six months or he is... T- unbearable.
0: Yeah. R2 is a droid that has such a personality and he loves Anakin so much in especially the Clone Wars that I think it would be like almost too tragic if he didn't remember him or didn't remember Ahsoka or like any any of that. So and also R2 is competence porn. So I believe that he would figure out a way to like not be mind wiped for sure.
2: Yeah, I, I think Jimmy Smith just says get that protocol droid's memory wiped mm-hmm. at the end of oh, this movie. Okay. So I, so R2's R2's memory is is safe. That's and I fine. think you know, and he is he is the witness to the mm-hmm. all, you know, the events of the Skywalker saga. Like he's the person there to record Basically, what is happening, you know, in whatever way he understands it to happen.
0: <laughs> Does that mean in the final Star Wars movie, whenever that is, the camera is going to pan over to a uh, to R two and he, it'll turn out he's been writing, making these movies, writing this down the whole time, and
1: and three P O is looking over his shoulder. That's not what happened. <laughs> speaking of R two D two,
2: I thought Our you were say speaking segment. of Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs>
1: Speaking of, we like to laugh a lot, and we certainly didn't in this movie. So for the lighter side of the Force, our final segment, R2 did some funny stuff.
0: Oh, my God. That first (laughs) sequence always makes me laugh. Like... Him just... He's, he's just, just doing his best. shoving the communicator
1: best. in his body. Yeah, like it's...
0: him shoving the communicator in it And you can still hear Obi-Wan talking. He's doing his best. They are asking the moon from him. And he is just, like, against all and He's odds. lassoing
1: it down for Yeah, him. he is yeah. just,
0: like... And there's this moment with Anakin where he's, like, don't start to, like, Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan's, like, I wasn't going to say anything. And Anakin's, like, he's doing his best. And it is just, like... It's so perfect. And, like, I... R2 is legitimately. Chopper gives him a run for his money, but R2 is legitimately my favorite droid because I don't understand how something that looks like a trash can has so much personality. Is
1: is he a manic pixie dream droid? He's
0: a manic pixie dream droid. Like he's wonderful, <laughs> and like he is just doing his best. And there's this moment too, uh, later on the bridge where they're. It's when they're captured by General Grievous, and Anakin's goes. R2 now, and he, like, throws the lightsabers at him. But then he also, like, pulls out every single appendage we have ever seen R2 have throughout the entire series. Like, I want to call this R2's beast mode that he goes into because, like, it is just, like, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And I just, I love him. I love him so much. The other thing that I found very, very funny is just how quickly Palpatine came up with Darth Vader as a name, which I just... I really feel like Palpatine was just like in his quiet time when he's in his Sith robes. Like, I don't I don't know what he does. He just seems to be in those robes a lot. He's just sitting there going, what am I going to call him? Like, I, I feel like there was some like brainstorming. It was Vader or Tim. There was like a mind map. Like he was like, what? Because, like, yeah, he's just he's just got it. He's like, it, but he pretends that like, he doesn't. He's like, we shall call you Darth vader (laughs) like i'm like no you knew that beforehand like you totally knew what you were gonna call him
2: i mean i i would love to like you know cut to palpatine robot chicken style like getting like a a (laughs) sith baby name book (laughs) off the shelf and like flipping through all of these sith names you could possibly use (laughs) yeah it's uh and and it's funny like that that opening sequence i i do love so much and i think if if these movies maybe the biggest flaw of these two movies. And it's a critique that I would also levy against large swaths of clone wars is that Obi-Wan and Anakin aren't together enough. And I think Mm -hmm. there's so much in the chemistry between Ewan and, Hayden that like, it's just not, there's not enough time in the movie. It's like watching the, um, behind the, that behind the scenes documentary. Um, I watched that while I was working yesterday and just seeing them practice that lightsaber duel, and how much fun they were having together and you could just see like the just the trust and like camaraderie that the two actors had and i was like i I just wish we got more of that in the movies and i even think you know there's that there's a couple art there's only there's not that much of clone wars where they're actually together the whole time it's often that they are splitting up which makes sense from like a narrative storytelling you know pulpy kind of adventure story format but you know, there's so much in that relationship that we should have gotten more of.
0: Wait, I can say my other favorite meme here, and it has to do with what Ryan's saying because it actually is from that beginning sequence where it's Anakin talking to Grievous, and oh, yeah. they overlay it with uh, "as as my master sa- once said, get fucked."
1: I never once. <laughs> said and then Obi once like, I
0: never once said that, Anakin, and I feel like that while obviously fictional, is like their relationship. like
2: <laughs> Very much. It, it would only be taught by Obi-Wan just responding, patience, Anakin. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I do love all the moments in the Clone Wars where he, uh, Obi-Wan interacts with Ahsoka and he's like, you learned that from Anakin. Like, <laughs> you did yeah. not learn that from me. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. On that note, next time, Disney, according to many... Stoops so low. That's right. We're talking about Solo. Get it? <laughs> yeah. Disney's answer to the question, what if Darth Maul wasn't dead, but we didn't tell you that till the end of the movie? Disney's answer to the question, what if we introduced at least two new characters who were super interesting, and then the movie doesn't do very well, and we're not going to show you them ever again? It's the answer to the question, what if the Millennium Falcon... Oh God! Oh no! Never mind. It's the movie that asks the question: What if Donald Glover was Lando Calrissian? It's the movie that asks the question: Is Chewbacca the most best character in the entire series? It's a movie that asks a lot of questions, and we'll have answers next time. For now, Ryan, where can people find you online?
2: Sure, you can uh, find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at whatever that's with a B. You can also find my writing on com as well as my free Substack, com.
1: We should do some stuff for that MovieJohn site. What do you think, Tessa? You, know, you think that would be a mean, good idea? That
0: would be a good fit for us, yeah.
1: Okay. I think so. All right.
0: You can find me on the aforementioned movie, John. Um, You can also find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. I think when this episode comes out, we will have just released our Thief of Time episode. We may or may not be about to release our The Last Hero episode. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club.
1: You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. May the force be with you. And have a great holiday season.